All right, it's March 5th, and we're discussing Lesson 17 of Epistle to the Hebrews. Let's open in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the time that uh, we can get together. I thank you for each one uh, who participates, Father, both here and online. I thank you for the time that we can uh, fellowship. I thank you also, Father, that you have uh, agreed to meet us. And we thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. We praise you. For you are a good God, and your word is a sure word, and we have the confidence to know that we can stand upon it. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Baruchut Adonai Hamborach, Baruch Adonai Hamborach, Leolam Vaid, Baruchata Adonai, Elohinu Melech Olam, Asher Bakabanu Mikoha Amin, Benatan Lanu et Toroto, Baruchata Adonai, Notain HaTorah. Amen. Bless Adonai who is blessed. Bless Adonai, who is blessed forever. Blessed art thou, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed art thou, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. Thank you. I think this one should have been merged with last one. Yeah, it was, uh, it was close, wasn't it? Was it was fun, though. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold, this is Yeshua speaking, he's speaking to some Pharisees, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other things, such things you do. Is that wrong to wash pitchers and cups? No. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of, man, of God that you may keep your tradition. What's wrong is overturning what God has said in favor of a tradition. And what we're going to look at today is that the traditional way of reading these passages we're looking at here in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, in fact, undoes what God has said oftentimes, and we want to see the difference. And that's Yeshua's words in Mark 7. Ironically, Mark 7 is used to undo the commandments of God by traditional interpretation. The very thing that they accuse, that they stand in Matthew 23 and point fingers at the Pharisees, you bunch of hypocrites, is the very thing they do in Mark 7 in the traditional reading. It's very sad. Well, last week we looked at the issue of shadows. Unlike theistic Platonism, we saw that the writer of the Epistle to the Hebrews does not negate shadows, but points out that shadows contain, present tense, the outline of the substance. The shadows are the only way that we can perceive what is invisible to us in the physical realm. God has given us his own God-given shadows. As we saw last week, the tabernacle was built as a shadow. This, the, the feasts, the uh, sacrifices, even the Sabbath is a shadow. What is it a shadow of? In the Greek we saw it was the word skia. In the Hebrew we saw it was the word tsel. And we saw that... It was, in fact, Betzalel, in the shadow of the Almighty, the, the young man, Betzalel, who constructed these furnishings of the tabernacle. The shadow is not a bad thing. They, it is the only way we can see what cannot be perceived by our eyes in this physical realm. Physical and spiritual are not in opposition to each other, but are in fact united, and they define reality. The earthly tabernacle was a copy of the heavenly one. It was a visible representation of what is invisible to us. 
and will remain invisible to us as long as we're here. The purpose of the shadows is to reveal, present tense, the original. It's to reveal. It keeps on revealing the original, just like a shadow shows the outline of a hand. Hebrews 9 describes this, this revelation and the relationship between shadows and their heavenly counterpart. When you begin to understand that these three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, are really the discussion of a more or less single topic, then you see that this, this using of the tabernacle is not a discussion of the tabernacle. It's a discussion of how the physical and the spiritual work together. The first and the second. Now, the problem is, as you begin to read this passage, uh, in, in most English Bibles, you see the words first tabernacle, second tabernacle, first tabernacle, second tabernacle, first covenant, second covenant, and you get the idea that the tabernacle, first tabernacle, second tabernacle, first covenant, second covenant, or new covenant actually is what it says, are, are the same thing, working back all the way through there. The problem is, it ignores some very important things. Number one, the word tabernacle is rarely found where they put it. Just like covenant is rarely found where they put it. It says first. It doesn't say covenant. It says first. and doesn't say tabernacle. So what is first? It is the Greek word protos or protos. 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 Or futuros. The word tabernacle is found in here occasionally. But we're going to see that it doesn't necessarily, is not necessarily speaking of the tabernacle as a unit when it, when it does, and we'll see why. One fundamental flaw comes from the, in the, in the theology that is developed from Hebrews 9, oftentimes the classic reading of Hebrews 9 comes from these words, the misunderstanding of the use of the, use of the words protos and deuteros, first and second. An example. Hebrews 8.5. Go there if you would. Which says, speaking of priests, right? Earthly priests who serve in the copy and shadow of heavenly things. Okay? So the earthly tabernacle was a copy or a shadow of a heavenly one, right? And Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle that he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Okay. Now, it seems very elementary, which makes it kind of difficult to understand why people confuse the issues of first and second here. Which tabernacle was first? That's right. So if I were to read Hebrews chapter 9 with that reference, what will I do? The first tabernacle is the heavenly one. That's been undone by the second one, the, the earthly one. That flips it backwards, doesn't it? Well, why are they doing the flipping backwards? Why are they saying the first is the earthly and the second is the, is the spiritual or the heavenly one? That's the way we see it. Yeah, but it's not second. It's not second at all. It was first. Moses made the earthly tabernacle second. It was a copy of the original, which is the first, the original. Right? So, in other words, Protos and Deuteros has nothing to do with any of that. If it did, it would be completely backwards from the way people are reading it anyway. Do you understand? That makes sense. What's first, what's second? Well, let's talk about the covenants. Is there a first covenant, second covenant? Is that what it describes in chapter 8 and chapter 10? 
maybe, but the question becomes, which came first? That's an interesting question. Well, if I'm going to use the tabernacle, first, second, as a reference, which came first? The spiritual came first. The heavenly one was the original, and Moses made a copy many, many, many years, or infinite number of years later, right? Which came first? So the whole issue of first, second is not in relationship to which one came first of the tabernacle, and I'll show you why. The minute you start playing this game, then it's Old Covenant, New Covenant, First Covenant, Second Covenant, right? I mean, it's easy to see the replacements. The, the later replaces the earlier, right? Well, how does the later, the earthly tabernacle, replace the earlier? It doesn't. It can't possibly. Because the earthly tabernacle is inferior. So it can't replace anything. And it came second. It's newer. It's the new one. Doesn't the new always replace the old? <laughs> That's right. See, see how see how we are so locked in our thinking that we can we can miss the very obvious. The very obvious in this chapter nine is the first and the second can't possibly be talking about tabernacle. Instead, if you carefully read it. You read that it's talking about parts of the tabernacle. Some versions actually correctly use and insert the word part into there. The English versions, okay? It's insert, it's added word, but they're trying to be clear. It's talking about a first part of the tabernacle, earthly tabernacle, and a second part of the earthly tabernacle. The protos of the earthly tabernacle and the deuteros of the earthly tabernacle. Why is he talking about that, protos? Deuteros. Why is he talking about the first and the second in the earthly tabernacle? What's his point? And as you begin to read, you begin to discover there's a very important definition he's giving to these words, protos and deuteros. And the definition has nothing to do with sequential, except that if you, if you participated in the morning prayers, you, you might be able to figure this out. If you had ever been to Jerusalem... During festival time, you might be able to figure this out as well. Without anybody explaining it, you would understand that as you approach the temple, there are increasing levels of holiness. And the first level, as you enter the temple, the first level of holiness is where the, is in the visible part of the, of the holy place. And the ultimate level, the second level of holiness for the priests is in fact in the holy of holies. So the first is the holy place, and the second is the holy of holies. The protos is the holy place. The deuteros, or the deuteros, is in the holy of holies. Okay? You're moving inward and levels of holiness. Go to chapter 9, verse 2. And I'm going to actually read in my New King James because that is the basis for something we're going to do here later as well. So it, uh, you, you're free to read in your, your uh, Bibles or your, uh, your out, your, in, your, uh, in your workbook has a text as well. Hebrews 9.2 says, then, uh, actually let me start in verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant, and the word covenant is added, even the first had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part, my Bible says part, 
the first part in which were the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which are called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which has, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets in the covenant. And above it were the uh, cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now these things, what things? These two parts of the tabernacle were prepared... Now these things had always been thus prepared. The priests always went into the first part. They always went into the first... Every day they went into the first part to do what? To clean the wicks. To uh, uh, On Shabbat, they changed the bread, right? And, and, uh, and uh, to keep, the, to keep the, uh, the menorah lit, right? Went into the first part of the tabernacle performing their services. But in the second part of the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicates this, that the way into the Holy of Holies was not made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Which is the first tabernacle? The one in the heavenlies. It's not talking about the first tabernacle. It's going back. It's talking about the first part. And actually, the word tabernacle there doesn't have to be capital T. It's the first compartment. While it was still standing, it was symbolic. And the word there is it was a parable. It was a parable for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience concerning all the foods and drinks various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation we're going to deal with this translation here in a second but what is visible the daily every day what's behind the veil do the priests get to see what's behind the veil nope do they know what's behind the veil kinda have they ever seen it never seen it never once never seen it it's invisible to them in fact, in the entire time of the Second Temple, there was nothing back there. Nothing. They would go in and pour the blood on a stone because the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there. But it was invisible to them. Understand? It was invisible to them. It was not where they went. We're being told this is a metaphor. He's telling us that the earthly tabernacle is a metaphor to explain something. He's not saying it's a metaphor in all the time. He's saying, I'm using this. The Holy Spirit is using the tabernacle to explain something to us. There's a visible and an invisible. Verses 3 through 8. The second refers to what is behind the veil. The deuteros is what's behind the veil in the earthly tabernacle. It's what was daily invisible. They only went in once a year. Okay? Well, we've already been given this correlation. That's why we looked at Yom Kippur last week, or two weeks ago. We've already been given this correlation. What was Yom Kippur, how was it a picture of something? It was a picture of what Yeshua did in the heavenlies, in the invisible. So we've already got this idea that, Yom, that the Holy of Holies is somehow connected to the, holy, to the Holy of Holies in the heavenlies. Okay? It is not just a copy of, it's a relate, there's a relationship. Something happens there. Okay? The spiritual one, or the one in, I shouldn't say the spiritual one, the one in the heavenlies, Yeshua did it once. 
The one on earth, somebody had to go in every year, but not every day. Okay? Not every day. We don't we want to get the relationship right. There's a daily thing, and then there's something that's reserved. Okay? And invisible. Where only the high priest goes. So let's look at that. It is a parable. Verses 8 through 9. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the Holy of Holies, excuse me, into the Holiest of all, was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Remember, first tabernacle can't possibly be speaking of the first of two tabernacles. It must be speaking of the first part, the protos, which we've seen already. And the reason why is because the first tabernacle, as... The writer of Hebrews has told us in chapter 8, verse 5, was the one in the heavenlies. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices were offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience, concerning only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. Fleshly ordinances. Hmm. That sounds like what we read last week, and it's down here in verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh in present tense. Wait a minute. The flesh, same word by the sarks there. Same word, fleshly ordinances. There's something physical about it. Well, the tabernacle, the first part of the tabernacle had a physical representation. They were doing stuff every day, physically, right? It's a parable for us. See? The two parts of the tabernacle. One part's invisible. That's where nothing happens except once. A year. Remember, he told us, look, there's a difference between once a year and once and for all. But it does, there is a relationship there. Once a year. And then there's this part of the tabernacle where stuff goes on all the time. It's always, people are always busy doing stuff in there. Okay? Physical stuff. Cleansing stuff. Did the people get to go into the Holy of Holies if they brought a sacrifice? No. They didn't even get to go into the holy place. They got to meet with God at this tabernacle, but it was outside. So that even the physical stuff that's going on only had so much of a level of purity, or holiness rather. Right? It's the holy of, holiest of all. That ultimate level of holiness was reserved. It's a parable. It's a metaphor. It's showing us the relationship between what is not seen and what's seen. What's not seen? The tabernacle in the heavenlies. We don't see it. What do we do, what do, we do see? This shadow here. Well, we don't today, but those people getting this letter, they said, well, the tabernacle, a temple, we see it. Yes, we see it. We can experience it. And what's he trying to tell them? Look, that's a physical thing. It's not bad. It's a physical thing. But understand that it has physical ramifications. But even in that very physical thing, there's a picture of what's going on. Something happens here on earth, physically, and it's being somehow represented in the whole, in the heavenlies, or vice versa, rather. So we see that the first part of the... the first It's not the first tabernacle, but rather the first part. Not the earthly one, the first part of the... Excuse me, not the earthly tabernacle, but the first part of the earthly one. Earthly tabernacle. There it says the first tabernacle. The writer's already given us the definition for protos and deuteros. Okay? Okay, what is the definition based on what, what we've seen so far? What's the definition for protos and deuteros? What's the definition? First and second. What's the first part? 
Okay? And, and can I see it or not see it? Okay? What's the second part? Holy of Holies. Can I see it or not see it? No, it's behind the veil. That's his point. It's behind the veil. It's not seen. So there's a visible and an invisible part. Okay? So he's given us the picture. There's visible and invisible. How do the visible and invisible work together? Which is what we did spend our homework with. Look at that. Go back to verse 9. It's pretty cool. Chapter 9, verse 5, excuse me, which says, speaking of the Ark of the Covenant and the Cherubim, it says, and above it were the Cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. That overshadowing is actually in the present tense, and look what word it is. Kataskiazo. We looked at that last week. The shadow. That, and this is what Rashi says. It's kind of cool. Rashi says, the cherubim. Now, he didn't read Hebrews, probably. says, the, Kero, the cherubim, overshadowing, they were a representation of the Almighty. They, they, he, they, he cast his shadow through them. So, on, they didn't look like the Almighty, but they were a fill-in, as it were. They were. We were supposed to look at that and know, that's the throne of the Almighty. Okay? Because they were a shadow, as it were. Okay, so here's the parable. And that's what it says. The Holy Spirit was signifying thus. Um, verse, uh, verse 8. The Holy Spirit was indicating this, that the way into the Holy of Alls was not made manifest. It was symbolic. Verse 9. It was symbolic. And that's the word parable. It, is a, it was a parable. The relationship between the holy place and the holy of holies points to the relationship between the protos and the deuteros. The visible tabernacle represented in the holy place and the invisible tabernacle represented in the holy of holies. The invisible one is the one in the heavenlies. Okay? You want to know what the one in the heavenlies looks like? Look at the one on earth. You don't want to know how the one in the heavenlies relates to the one on earth? How did the Holy of Holies relate to the holy place on earth? Okay? So it's kind of like, you know those little Russian dolls where they get, you know, you keep getting smaller and smaller? So it's kind of like, it's almost circular logic. It's almost like you're looking in a mirror which sees yourself in another mirror, you know, which, and the, the figures go into the distance. It's kind of like that idea. It's like it's a, it's a picture of a picture of a picture. But the point is that that earthly tabernacle represents the relationship between the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle. The whole point of bringing this tabernacle discussion in the middle of chapter 8 and 10, chapter 9, its whole point is to make this point. That's it. The only reason he even brought up the tabernacle was to make this point. This is a parable. I'm going to tell you something about how this stuff works, is what he says. This is how it works. You know the tabernacle? It's a parable. You know you had a first part that you walked into, but there was a second part you couldn't see? And you know how the two related to each other? You knew that you couldn't come into the first part unless the high priest had gone into the second part once a year. You knew that it worked because of that, and yet you still couldn't go there. You couldn't see it. But you knew that it worked because you were there doing it. Right? They say, if you want to know how all this stuff works with Yeshua as a high priest, this is how it works. It works like the tabernacle works. You can see that. You know how the tabernacle works. He's talking to people who know it full well. You know how it works. And this is how it works. This is the nature of 
And so he's using it to explain the way that the heavenlies relate, or the heavenly tabernacle relates to us here on earth. Once you redefine the writers, once you define, correctly define the writer's use of the words protos and deuteros, and then you go back and read chapters 8 and 10, careful to eliminate the added words and just find first and second, or maybe even new, possibly, you begin to go on, wait a minute. That's exactly what he's trying to do. He's trying to show me that things have not been done away with. However, the heavenlies, what you can't see, actually is better. It's better. So if the first part, if the earthly is taken away from you, rest assured, you have the heavenly. It's better. Okay? Well, we understand that. But we sure can make a whole lot of mess out of this, these passages if we, don't, if we try and make it say something other than that. Okay? The entire argument is Kalvachoma. How much more? Go back, go back to chapter 9, verse um, 11. But Messiah came as high priest of the good things to come, which is gr- which with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. It's the first one, by the way. So, But he doesn't even call it the first because he doesn't want to confuse us. Right? It's the original. Not with the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all. Remember, the high priest goes in once a year. Yeshua goes in once for all, having obtained the eternal redemption. Not just cleansing of the flesh, right? But eternal redemption. For if, and get, get this, there's the call of Homer. But if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the meat. See, he's getting to this point. All of it was about getting to this point. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. That, by the way, that, that does say first covenant there. Okay? First covenant. That those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now, if I follow the word first all the way through there, what do I get a correlation then between the two parts of the tabernacle? Not two tabernacles, the two parts of the earthly tabernacle in relationship to covenant. Right there, what do I get? There's a visible part and an invisible part. Are they two separate parts? Yes. Are they two separate covenants? Yes. Do they work together? Most assuredly. In how far you want to take and carry the analogy, it's interesting to note that if you move more study of Day of Atonement, that Yom Kippur's whole purpose was to, one of the biggest purposes was to sanctify the tabernacle, which included the first part so that the first part had um, functionality. And it was it was capable of doing what it was supposed to be doing because otherwise there was impurity. In effect, so in effect it was atoning for the transgressions. That's right. They were related to the first part. Absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly right. And I, I think that writer, and it, what's really funny is, I, I read a bunch of different commentaries, and one thing that's really funny is uh, those who read the words carefully and who give 
give the idea that this, the writer of this book is maybe a Hellenist Jew but is intimately acquainted with the sacrificial system. That his intimate knowledge is, is shows up in these verses. Because his careful use of words, and just like Joshua indicates, his careful use of words, but also understanding the very purpose of Yom Kippur. In his use of Yom Kippur as a, as a, as a picture of what Yeshua did. His very understanding of that, and then using the tabernacle, proves his intimate knowledge. And that's, again, my own personal view is that it's, it's, it's Luke. And he's not a Gentile, he's actually a, a, a Hellenized uh, Jew. Uh, Greek being his first language, but he's he's either of the tribe of of Levi or he is intimately acquainted with the tribe of Levi, as we see in in his writing to Theophilus in, in Luke and also in Acts. Theophilus, my view is Theophilus is most likely uh, son of the high priest and ends up being high priest for a short period of time. That's just that's conjecture on my part, but that that would make it very clear. How this man knows how much what he knows, and he and he's intimately acquainted with um, these things. Did I skip forward by accident? Huh? Is that the next slide? Okay. Okay. I have the New King James, and I was reading it to you for on purpose because I wanted to impress upon you. And I I'm, I apologize. I did not go into the NASB. I don't have access to the NASB's verb tenses. Um, I know a lot of people use that, and it's a good Bible. And as, in this, as is the King James and the New King James, they're very good Bibles. But in the verb tenses, in this, pardon me? Same thing. It's, it's very, yes, it is. NIV, uh, same thing. Um, uh, you, you're going to find fairly consistent translator bias here. Okay? The New King James, I decided to count them. I went through every single verb in chapter 9 and changed it back to what it was in the original and then counted no less than 11 some are questionable because they have to insert a verb sometimes in English where there is no verb uh, because the Greek didn't need a verb there but no less than 11 times they change the verbs they change the verbs that are in the Greek when they put it in English they put it in past tense now if it was just random we'd say well you know it makes it read easier it's not random it's done with a specific intent. Every single, every single, by the way, King James says worse. Every single time they come across the tabernacle or the sacrificial system that uses the present tense, they change it to the past tense. You know what's so odd about that? It's that in this case, when they change, the translators change the tenses in the four gospel accounts. There's a little asterisk there where it says, you know, and Jesus was saying to them, which is the correct translation, but they said, when Jesus said, Said. and there's a little asterisk there every last time. That's right. To indicate that they They don't do it here. They don't do it here. They don't do it here. And actually, actually, I just did chapter nine, guys. It's a known. It's it's just known. We saw last week in Colossians. It's just known that any time you talk about the Hebraic or Judaic system, the translators automatically make it past tense. It's just automatic. They just it can't possibly be operational. They don't want to confuse the readers. Wait, I'm a Christian. There's no way that this stuff operates anymore. That's what they think. 
When the translators, however, come across the verb that speaks about the work, of the effect, not the work of Yeshua, it's completed. And actually, they do a good job, really good job, in talk, talking about his work, not only completed, past tense, but, past, but, but perfect tense, completed and can't be added to. However, there is an effect. There's one verb that changes. The effect of what he's done is future tense, and they put it as past tense. And I'll show that one to you. Okay? You have to ask the question, why? The answer is clear. They either did not understand the passage, which I don't buy. <laughs> they didn't understand the passage, or they didn't, know, they didn't like what it was saying. It's the same thing that the translators do in chapter 8, verse 13. And I'm going to talk about that here in a second as well. Chapter 8, verse 13, where they say, In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete, obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. They, well, they messed with it there too, and I'll show you here in a second. What they want to do is they want to say, it's obsolete. The tabernacle and the system is obsolete. Well, it is obsolete in the sense that it isn't around here, but it isn't obsolete. It isn't obsolete. If there were a tabernacle, if there were a temple, it would not be obsolete. Their bias in fiddling with the verbs is, in my view, simple wickedness. Because it is done with the intent of, of undoing. Let's go to uh, page 109 in your homework. And I'm going to read this translation, which was... I'm not a translator. That's very cool. But I, I basically went through and I said, you know, if they're messing with it, is there another way to say it? And uh, as you see, there is. Indeed, for if indeed the first covenant had ordinance of divine service and earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared, the visible part, right? In which is, not was, is, is the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the visible parts veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which has, not had, has. The writer is saying has. The golden censer in the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides, in which is the golden pot that had the manna, that has, excuse me, has the manna. That's another one. Aaron's rod that budded each one of these things they changed purposefully it's consistent Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant and above it was actually and that is was the cherubim of glory overshadowing present tense overshadows the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail why? because they're invisible <laughs> They're not visible. That's his point. I can't tell you about it because I hadn't seen it. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, past tense, that's correct, the priests always, not went, always go. The priests go into the visible part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the invisible part, the high priest, guess what? Present tense, goes goes alone once a year not without blood which he guess what offers not offered offers for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance the Holy Spirit guess what is illustrating this point that the way into the invisible part the holiest of all was not made evident while the visible part still has standing or is in use right 
do you, you guys understand when the, it, it actually made the point and we, in our study we actually saw that on Yom Kippur who was allowed into the holy place while the, while the high priest was going into the holy of holies no one no one that's what he's, ta- that's what he's talking about that's exactly what he's talking about. When the Holy of Holies is being used, no one's allowed into the holy place. That's what he's saying. This is, this is his point. He's saying, while the visible part's in use, you can't go in. And the other way around. When the invisible part's in use, no one's allowed to use the visible part. Okay? It, that is the visible part, is a parable for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performs, present tense, the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with food and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances, and, yes, present tense. How do you say imposed in a present tense? I can't say it. I, I tried. It's epikemai. And it's actually the com- epi, upon, or under, huh? In place? It, that's right. In place. That's it. In place is what it is. It lays upon. So actually, if you <laughs> I should have changed this one too. Fleshly ordinances which are in effect, which have standing, which, which work until the time of Reformation. What is the time of Reformation? That word is um, uh, diathrosis. 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 Ortho. If your bones break, right? They're not straight. You go to orthopedic uh, surgeon or you go to uh, um, someone who deals with the straightening of bones. That's what ortho is talking about, to make it perfectly straight. When is the time when everything is perfectly straight? It wasn't in the past tense. And it's not in the present tense either. When is it? When he comes and sets all things right. Which is, listen, if you come from a Hebrew point of view, if you, if you came from a Jewish background and you came to Yeshua and you, were, and you, had, been, you had been trained in in a Hebrew reading of scripture you'd hear the time of reformation you'd say well that's when Messiah sets all things right that's what you'd say the time of reformation is when Messiah sets all things right and that's not past tense that's future tense is that cool? the Messiah came as high priest of the good guess what? it's not past tense it's not the good that it's not the good that has come it is the good that is coming it is pointing to the future. It's actually present tense, though. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is of this creation. I'm going to pick up. That's as far as I went in the translating. I'm going to pick up some other ones here that, oh, that I have. Not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For with the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer, sprinkling, present tense, the unclean, sanctifies, present tense, for the purifying, present tense, of the flesh. How much more should the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, will cleanse, future tense. It will cleanse. They changed it. They say cleanses, present tense. It will cleanse. It will cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve, present tense, the living God. 
For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. By means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of, an, an, of the eternal inheritance. Um, uh, if, if you continue down to verse 22, and according to the law, the Torah, almost all things were purified? No. Guess what? They changed it every single time. Every single time it speaks of the tabernacle or the sacrificial system, they change it from present tense to past tense. And according to the Torah, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Verse 23, Therefore it was, it was necessary, that's an added uh, verb, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified, present tense, with these things. Actually, that's the, that's the last one they change. Anyway, going through there, they change, they change uh, uh, 11. No less than 11 if you don't count the, word, the verbs they added. If you count the verbs they added, they changed, uh, I think it was 14. From past tense, or from present tense to past tense. And they changed the one referring to uh, will cleanse our conscience from, from uh, present tense, or from future tense. They changed it and put it as present tense, like it was done. Let's look at this visible and invisible. Because this was really the point of us doing this. It was the point he was trying to make. And when we look at New Covenant next week, we'll see it again. Well, he's looking there. Morgan said that uh, this seemed to her to be yet another indication of the timing of the writing. It is. I believe that's true. How could he use present tense in communities? Well... I'll I'll tell you the theological answer and it's not an invalid one the Mishnah uses present tense as well the the Mishnahic Hebrew as as well as you can use present tense in the Mishnahic Hebrew it's not as precise as the present tense that we see in Greek but it it uses it it speaks of the the offerings as present tense and as you know if you read Rashi he speaks of it as as if it's in effect which is right it's correct you know that's a theological correctness that's exactly right you know how can you speak of it just because we sinned and the temple was destroyed how can you then say that it's of no longer effect yeah. No, it's because we sinned, right? Which is exactly what they say. How did we sin? Judah. What has a head in it? Chofes Chaim has a head in it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> We've been talking about what has a head in it. And all of a sudden he came down the stairs yesterday and he goes, Chofetz Chaim has two heads, heads in it. And I go, yes, right. <laughs> Chofetz Chaim. The Chofetz Chaim uh, of blessed memory was... Uh, Actually, maybe incorrectly, but he says that the holy temple was destroyed because of the because Jews didn't get along with Jews. They badmouthed one another. Um, Lashon hara. Specifically, they bad tongued one another. <laughs> but the point of it is that regardless of whether it was because of the denial of Yeshua as Messiah, which would be Lashon hara, speaking ill or whether it was just Jews not getting along. Regardless, it was destroyed for the sin of the people. Period. So if the sin of the people is what, the reason it was destroyed, how can then we just automatically assume, that's it, it's done with. Right? Certainly it was operational when we looked at Acts, right? Look at First Timothy. First Timothy. Um, one seventeen. Because this was, we use this as the parable, Right? It's the parable. What's the parable? The relationship between the invisible and the visible. 
Now the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. In other words, that is, to God, who alone is wise, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. Nowhere in the Tanakh does it say that God is invisible. It says multiple places that so-and-so saw him. And yet Judaism holds as one of their principal articles of, quote, faith, that God is invisible. Paul says it a lot. It is an extremely Pharisaic understanding. It is very Pharisee, which is why Judaism today says God is invisible. We have God is invisible from our best-known Pharisee, Paul. God is invisible. He cannot be seen. And his wife. Oh, darn it, we saw God. Yeah. And we have to. <laughs> That's right. We saw it. We saw it. And when we did Messiah and Tanakh, we saw, they saw him. Mm-hmm. Is God invisible? Absolutely. But they see. But it's interesting that they thought they were. This is. Because they saw. They saw him. Okay. They saw him. They saw the invisible. It's impossible. I saw the invisible God. Yeah. What did they see? A shadow. John 1.18 Now, I've got to be careful how I say this, but I, I want you to see my point in bringing this up. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. Oh, John. is comes from a probably a priestly family. I'm thinking he's family of the high priest. Right? No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is the bosom of the Father, has declared Him. Okay? No one has seen Him. Colossians 1.15 This is, oh man, what a, what a powerful... I mean, it's like Paul's like, okay, let me just give it to you straight. This is it. Yeah. I can find it here. Philippians, Colossians 1.15 says... He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the visible of what is invisible. He is the protos. Or protos, excuse me. Protos. What's the deuteros? <laughs> He is the visible image of he who is invisible. Okay? John 1, 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. But wait. He is also the Deuteros. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the light and the light was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Skipping down to verse um, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Wow. That's the tabernacle. That's tabernacle language. Right? What's the reason for building the tabernacle? That I may dwell among them, or I may dwell in them, right? That's tabernacle language. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son is in the bosom of the Father. He is God manifest. John 14, 8 through 11. 
Yeah, hello. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. It will be sufficient for us. Yeshua said to him, have I, been so, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Okay, I want to be careful how I say this, but I want to tell you straight up. Yeshua is the shadow. Anybody that denigrates shadows is, is, is denigrating the Master. Do not believe that I am in the Father. Do, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? That Holy of Holies was inside the tabernacle, wasn't it? How did I know it was there? Because there are sacrifices going on on the outside. That's how I knew it was there. That's the only way I knew it was there. I never saw it. Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father in me? The words which I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the words themselves. James 2, excuse me. The word for Jesus says that I am in the Father and the Father is in me is the same word that in John 1 where he says dwelt among. Uh, uh, yes, in, in. It's the same word. It's the same word. And do you remember when we looked at that in, in uh, the purpose for the tabernacle where it says betokhem, where it says betokham, excuse me, where it's talking about in the, or among them is how it's translated in English. The, the bait, the bait there is a preposition that means in or among. Either one. Exactly the same. Yeah, it seems like John was probably a Jew and probably, I don't know. My guess is he probably learned Hebrew first. <laughs> Just a guess, though. <laughs> Just a guess. James 2, 14 through 16. I, I honestly, guys, this is the honest truth. There are a lot of seminaries that teach that Yeshua spoke Greek as his primary language and all, all, the, and all the disciples did as well. Because that's why they wrote in Greek. You know, I mean, it's amazing. There is no, there's no, there is absolutely zero archaeological evidence to that of the first century. In fact, all the written evidence, Josephus and others, says exactly the opposite. Eusebius, same thing, exactly the opposite. Uh, James two fourteen through twenty six. But they just like to think about it. You know, I'm sure they spoke Greek. No, uh, Mel, Mel, Mel Gibson, they spoke Latin. 2.14 What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith, can, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, Depart in peace, be warmed, be filled, but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? Well, I'm getting, I'm getting a relationship here between faith and and works. Thus also faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. You know, the spirit, there is no spirit, excuse me, there is no body without the spirit, right? As we see, works as well without faith are dead. The body without the spirit is dead. They gotta be together. They're a unit. They're a unit. But anyone but someone will say to you, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He's not bragging. What he's saying is, you can't show me your faith without works. You can't. You can't show me an invisible holy of holies if there is no tabernacle. You can't say, There's the Holy of Holies. Well you can't see it, but it's there. 
No, no. The only way you could say there's a holy of holies is if you see a holy place, a tabernacle surrounding it. It's the only way you could say there must be a holy of holies in there. Because you can see the tabernacle. The, ta- the visible tabernacle is proof that there is a holy of holies. It's the proof. But you see in the tabernacle in the heavenlies, if you want to see the tabernacle in the heavenlies, rather, look at the earthly one. If you want to see the Father, look at the Son. Actually, now I've got to step back, because I, I wasn't going to do this till next week, but I think I need to, in preparation for next week, go back to chapter 8, verse 13. And I'm going to do my best off, off the cuff. And I, it may not be good, but I will do it off the cuff here. Chapter 8, verse 13 says, In that he says, a new covenant. He doesn't say new covenant there. The words new covenant, uh, excuse me, I think it just says, in that he says, a new. Okay? He made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Here is the, here is the way that this reads with tenses. Okay? We'll go into it next week specifically to discuss this vanish away thing. But he has made the first obsolete. It's not. It's not in the present tense. It's actually in the, per, in the perfect tense. In other words, it was always, whatever this is, the word obsolete, it was always that way. It was always that way. And it's the sense of something that can decay. No, it's, he made it. It's done. It was always this way. The first was always this way. What is it? And the idea of it's decaying is this. It's physical. <laughs> it's like you. Is it eternal? Absolutely. But it's like you. Listen. And what is becoming obsolete, you know, it's not... It's like it's in process. It's, 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 it's the very nature of it. It's actually not even a verb there. Becoming obsolete. And growing old is ready to vanish away. It's not be seen. It's not be seen. And we'll go into this again next week. But I wanted to give you that because I didn't focus on that in the next lesson and the lessons on the tabernacle. The, excuse me, the new and the... First, and the, and the New Covenant, I wanted you to see that this verse speaks of the first as being somehow physical. Okay? Somehow, somehow fleshly, as it were. And that it is, um, when it says becoming obsolete, actually the word obsolete is extremely rude in the Greek. Uh, it's, not any, it's nothing like that. It's nothing like that. It means not seen. It's going to be not... And it says vanish away. Same, same reference. It's going to be not seen. Okay? But we'll get to that. We'll get, uh, next week we'll go into depth in that. Um, for our summary though, Hebrews 9 is a chapter that seems to be about the abrogating of the tabernacle temple system. If you take it all by itself and you don't read the other chapters, you may come up with this. In fact, people, like we've talked about from the very beginning, people like to quote Hebrews, but they don't really... Quote it in context because it's too long and too complex. My view is this is probably one of the most complex chapters, chapter 9, the most complex chapters in what it's describing in all of Scripture. Without even being metaphorical, because he's not being. I mean, he's showing a metaphor, he's showing a parable, 
but he's explaining in very clear terms. But boy, it's complex, and it's hard to keep track of who's going where and what's doing what and what's doing what. Okay. The reason why it's difficult to read is because the translators have done a really good job of confusing the issue. The tabernacle imagery is not being used uh, to abrogate it, but instead it's being used to point to the relationship between the visible and the invisible. Because the discussion which began in chapter 8 and continues into chapter 10 is about the new covenant and Yeshua being the mediator of it. And the writer is trying to teach us what first means and what second means, what old means and what new means. He's trying to teach us using the tabernacle as his flannel graph, as it were. Okay? Both the visible and the invisible comprise reality. They are not exclusive of each other. The invisible is enclosed within the visible. The fact that, yeah, is that amazing? I mean, you start thinking about it. It's like, wow, man. And it's like we've talked about. You know, who can celebrate Passover knowing Yeshua? Obviously, people do it without knowing Yeshua. Who could celebrate, knowing Yeshua, who could celebrate Passover and not have a fresh understanding each year of what he's done for them? Right? All of the, all of the festivals, those shadows. Who cannot celebrate Shabbat and not understand the, the, the thing that we look forward to? And that is the eternal rest. Um, uh, innumerable things as we go through scripture these shadows point to the very the very original as it were they are the only way that we can see the original any final comments before we close questions you have one okay does it have a hat in it can you think of another word that has a hat in it Does Baruch have a Het in it? Let's 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 see. Here's here's a Baruch right here. Okay, let's pray and then we'll sing and then we'll have, we'll hear a Het in it. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the writer of this book. We thank you for uh, the diligence that you uh, gave. Uh, to him, Father, and also that, that you superintended and kept this safe and preserved for us. We thank you for all those who have uh, been careful in the rendering of it. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet Vachai olam dekapetokhenu Baruch atah Adonai Noten haTorah Amen Blessed art thou Adonai our God King of the universe who gave to us the Torah of truth and planted eternal life in our midst Blessed art thou Adonai Giver of the Torah 